Hi, it's Ariel, the host of Reset. And quick update on the show. Reset is now a weekly podcast. We've shifted our schedule to publish episodes every Friday, starting with this one. So take a minute and make sure you're subscribed to the show. Okay, here's today's episode. Asia Romano is a culture reporter for Vox.com who writes about the internet. And a few weeks ago, Asia noticed something interesting was going on on Twitter. Something that involved the Dallas Police Department and an app. So during the first week of the national protests over George Floyd, near the end of May, the Dallas Police Department put out a tweet slash announcement on social media asking for people to send them videos of illegal activity from the protests. And they wanted people to use a special app that they created named the iWatch Dallas app, which basically allows people in the area to upload videos and other media of things in their area that they think are suspicious. And the police can sort of monitor these videos that people are are uploading through the app. So... Fan cams are sort of notorious, especially on Twitter, because they often are used to completely derail threads. Uh, So say if you post a thread about your cat or your dog and it goes viral, you may find your thread spammed with K-pop fans being like, check out my favorite idol, check out my favorite group. So they've gotten to be sort of a notorious thing on social media. But in this specific case, uh, the K-pop fandom responded to this call by the Dallas police by spamming the app, the iWatch Dallas app, with fan cams uh, to the extent that the app actually went down and had to be taken offline. Okay, so Korean pop music fans weaponized these fan videos to screw with and eventually take down this Dallas Police Department surveillance app, and they did this in the name of Black Lives Matter? Yes. And so this incident got tons of attention from people on social media and sort of became its own sub-story in the middle of all this. That story being, how is the K-pop fandom helping Black Lives Matter, or is it helping Black Lives Matter? Today on the show, K-pop fans are engaging in online activism in the name of Black Lives Matter. But what might look like a really simple and even beautiful demonstration of allyship is a lot more complicated than it seems. I'm Ariel Zimros. This is Reset. Asia Romano, internet culture reporter at Vox.com. At the risk of sounding completely naive, what is K-pop? So K-pop refers to Korean pop. And broadly, it just means pop music that comes from Korea. Uh, But usually when people use it, they mean something very specific, which is a mode of Korean pop music that involves uh, Korean music studios creating, training, cultivating idol groups. I like to explain this whole process as resembling the Mickey Mouse Club. (laughs) You have all these people from Disney auditioning kids, bringing them into sort of the Disney fold. They may be on the Mickey Mouse Club. They may be on TV shows on the Disney Channel. But they grow up in this sort of oeuvre of Disney-ness, right? And then suddenly, the next thing you know, they are these breakout pop stars. They're Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Selena Gomez, the Jonas Brothers. All of those people came up through the Disney system. 
K-pop is exactly like that, except that instead of turning out individual stars, they tend to focus on putting stars into groups. And these groups become known as idol groups because they're made up of quote-unquote idols. And they are very, very big deals. Uh, the groups all are usually either girl bands or boy bands. And they all have components of singers, dancers, and rappers. And they are very, very polished. They're very, very professional. Um, idols train for years uh, just for the chance to be put in an idol group. Really? Yes. It's a very, very elaborate process. Some idols will, will travel overseas and study in America. Some idols will be scouted in America and train here and then come to Korea. And once a band finally debuts, they still have a, a number of other hurdles to go through in terms of like making, they have to win fans, they have to uh, make sure that their songs chart, they have to do certain things within Korean culture that, that signify success. But K-pop idol groups that do well can do very, very well. And by very well, I mean they can attain massive global fan bases and huge, huge audience recognition from around the world. Is there one song that you think is really emblematic of what we're talking about here? And can you sort of tell me a little bit about it? Absolutely. Um, so I actually I curated a, a K-pop list for Switched on Pop. And this was the song that I opened the playlist with. It's uh, Brown Eyed Girls' Abracadabra, which I believe is a song from 2009. And it is about as iconic as K-pop gets for a number of reasons. If you've never seen this video, it opens with a bunch of, of dancers, basically all in black, set against the white background. When the drum beat kicks in, they switch into this very seductive sway with their arms crossed. Mm. It's not very complicated, but that sway has become iconic within Korean culture. It's called the arrogant dance. <laughs> okay. I mean, you can see it. You can see the arrogance in their, their shoulders and their body language. Mm -hmm. And... That idea that, that there's this one sort of sub-movement from this dance is also really a big part of Korean uh, pop music because dance is very, very, very crucial to K-pop. Okay, so that's K-pop music, right? But then you were talking about the K-pop fandom. So can you explain what that is? So fandom is a word for basically any community of fans, usually uh, people who are very active in some way. Because K-pop fandom is very, very global, the K-pop fandom is intrinsic to social media. Like social media, especially Twitter, uh, has become a huge, huge apparatus within the fandom. Mm -hmm. K-pop fans are very, very good at sort of organizing through the use of hashtags. And uh, and there's not really a centrally located sort of source for the fandom anymore as much as there are just uh, people on social media sort of rapidly organizing and coalescing around different uh, projects, crusades, hashtags, and campaigns, and so forth. So it sounds like these fans are super online and in a pretty good position to troll a police app. Absolutely. They already have all the mechanisms you would need to quickly mobilize and get tons of people ready <laughs> and and spamming your app with uh, K-pop videos. Now when you say go derail this app, they are ready to jump into the fray. So with that in mind, has the fandom done other activism supporting Black Lives Matter aside from the Dallas Police Department app thing? Absolutely. Before this app even happened, uh, fans spent the first week of the protests very loudly um, cautioning other fans to to sort of clear out of the way and make room for 
the importance of the Black Lives Matter hashtag. Fans were encouraging each other not to uh, to spam feeds to sort of make sure that they made room for important information that needed to sort of come through. Um, They were also encouraging each other not to buy or promote uh, any new releases that happened that week because they they didn't want the the new music to take away from Mm. the importance of the protests. So they were actually holding back with the idea of amplifying the Black Lives Matter movement. Absolutely. The emphasis was very much on amplification. Have they done anything else? They've also derailed hashtags. It is estimated there are about 90 million K-pop fans worldwide. And this morning, it appears many of them have set their sights on disrupting racist social media hashtags by posting so much and so quickly that it is impossible for the racist posts to see the light of day. There have been hashtags that have sort of attempted to, uh, I guess, counter Black Lives Matter, like the All Lives Matter, White Lives Matter, those types of things. And K-pop fans have essentially immediately derailed those hashtags by taking them over and spamming them with K-pop content. Huh. The idea, of course, is to keep actual radicals from using them and keep extremists from getting information from them or recruiting from them. There's a little bit of controversy there because if you take over a hashtag, then you make it continue to remain in the public eye. Right. If you're suddenly swarming a hashtag, you might actually keep it in people's feeds for for longer than it would otherwise. Right, exactly. So whereas Twitter might not trend White Lives Matter if it had just been left to die, ironically, it's trending under the K-pop trend. Like it's trending as a K-pop trend. So now so now it seems like, you know, K-pop is saying White Lives Matter. Hmm. All right. So when you say hashtag derailment, it's the same thing as a, as when somebody derails a conversation. It just like makes it completely unusable and you eventually have to leave it. So how exactly does this work? When we say the fandom is doing something, what do we mean? So you can think of, of things like hashtags and viral tweets that are calls to action as being sort of bat signals for fans as they're looking for information and looking for where to gather next. You know, it's the um, all points bulletin for fans, you know, gather here, assemble on this hashtag and and go to work, that sort of thing. Um, In fact, I saw this one tweet from someone on my feed the other day and she, her tweet was like, I just woke up. What hashtags are we using today? What's the latest news on Black Lives Matter? And it struck me that she wasn't actually getting her news from regular news sources. She wasn't even getting her news from like a Twitter search for Black Lives Matter. She was getting her news by asking, what are the fandom hashtags we're using today? And what sort of information am I going to get for them? So you can think of the hashtag itself as like an assembly point of sorts. It's sort of like the public town square for the 21st century. The thing that strikes me when I'm listening to you is that like we're talking about a music fandom, right? It depends on the band, of course, but I don't necessarily associate pop music fans with political activism. So why has the K-pop fandom become politically active like this? I don't think it's like the K-pop fandom suddenly became quote unquote woke. I think, you know, K-pop fans are people just like the rest of us. They've been living in the world just like the rest of us. They've been gaining new political awareness just like the rest of us, right? There's been an increased awareness of people going, how can we use our fandom to sort of make change, benefit the vulnerable and the marginalized, and basically like live out our values through the intersection of what we love with what we are politically engaging with. And this is all complicated. It's messy. K-pop culture has long um, 
really complicated history of racism and cultural appropriation, especially regarding hip hop and black culture. There's a lot of really messy, intersecting complications here in terms of, you know, who's doing the campaigning? Why are they doing it? Who are they talking over? You know, many English language K-pop fans are are white. So there's a lot of, of things you have to think about when you think about um, like politics and fandom. And so I think all of that put together uh, sort of complicates this narrative of K-pop fans campaigning for Black Lives Matter. When it comes to Black people and Blackness, K-pop, like many other forms of popular music, isn't a shining example of wokeness. The imagery, right? We've got, I don't know where to begin. The Bulls jersey, the basketball, the fade cut, the pimp stick with the dollar sign on it. It sounds sort of racist because it often is racist. That's after the break. This is Reset. Miranda Ruth Larson loves K-pop. She's a fan, and she's also a K-pop scholar. She's been writing about Korean pop idols as part of her PhD research at the University of Tokyo, research that often involves meeting with K-pop idols and fans in Japan. And because of that, her identity comes up a lot. My mother's white. Uh, My father is Black Puerto Rican. So for a lot of people, even in the U.S., they see me and they don't know what to qualify me as. And then also in Japan, especially, I don't fit the image of what might be expected of a stereotypical American or a stereotypical Black woman uh, in the Japanese mindset. Uh, But I identify as a multiracial woman and I identify as a Black woman. So, I mean, I've had my own experiences too, meeting idols in Japan and they look at me and they're like, you're not Japanese. And I go, yeah, so let's, how how are we going to deal with this? (laughs) Um, That happens often. I asked Miranda to tell me what she loves about K-pop. K-pop is this really weird time travel genre, if we want to call it a genre, or style of production of music, because it has a sound to most of it that harkens back in one way or another to 90s R&B, New Jack Swing era music in the U.S. And that's the music I was raised on. So for me, I would listen to songs and say, wow, this sounds like Tony, Tony, Tone. Like, oh, this sounds like New Edition, you know? And for me... Uh, I find American music now tends to be a little lacking, <laughs> um, especially, especially in terms of, of the boy group. A group of men who can sing well, like a boys to men, oh, yeah. um, is really ab- is absent. So K-pop fills that void for me. And it's also this odd sense of nostalgia, even though it's in a language that I'm still learning. Is there a specific example of this sort of 90s hip-hop and R&B influence that you can give me right now? Like, is there a song that's emblematic of this for you? Oh, sure. Uh, So recently, the group Super Junior came out with a song called Mamacita. And the beginning hook of Mamacita... ...is a hook from Blackstreet's No Diggity. No diggity, no doubt. And when I first heard it, I thought that they were, that they had, they had like plagiarized, that they had ripped off Blackstreet. And then I realized looking in the credits that actually Teddy Riley, the man behind Blackstreet, had written the actual song for Super Junior. A lot of the creators from the New Jack Swing era or the 90s R&B, they now work 
in one capacity or another in the K-pop industry. So the sound is actually coming also from them. Okay, so I'm sorry, I feel like I have like a whole new understanding of K-pop and sort of its influence here. We're talking about direct influence from the same people who who made 90s R&B and hip hop. Oh, yeah. I mean, it depends on the label and depends on the group, but a lot of them will contract out specifically. Uh, I have a friend who's uh, in music production in the U.S. and he he'll write lyrics and, you know, put it on out on the market as an open call for artists. And then it ends up being picked up by K-pop artists. This happens all the time now. This kind of makes me think of what Russell Simmons of Def Jam did for the Beastie Boys. Mm-hmm. You know, this white rap group in the 80s, like Simmons yep. is black. And at the time, he had already had a ton of cred because of Run DMC. So is history repeating itself here? Are black American producers and musicians also really deeply involved in the launching of K-pop groups? Well, one of the issues is K-pop at the outset when we're really talking about the beginnings with three big companies, right? We call them the big three, SM Entertainment, YG, and JYP. From the beginnings, they had a goal of we want to sort of essentially make Black music, but with Koreans. And as the years have gone on, I think the transparency of the involvement of Black creators has been changing. Hmm. So in some cases, it's very easy to find, oh, here's the person behind this and here's the credit they deserve. And in other cases, it's not and it's obfuscated. Can we actually talk about that? Because it's really hard to listen to you talk about this without thinking about cultural appropriation. I think the first thing is we often say cultural appropriation when we mean cultural misappropriation. Hmm. So cultural appropriation often that's more of a of a top down of a conscious right? I am taking this from you. Right. Um, But cultural misappropriation is what we see a lot in K-pop, which is this is something that is registered as cool, especially globally. This is something that's registered as being in as, you know, that type of thing. And I'm going to use it and not quite understand the resonance it has in different communities. That tends to be what happens in K-pop is misappropriation. Is that... I don't know. I feel like that kind of gives people a pass, right? Not quite understanding what that means. Like, how should I how should I react to that? Well, part of the problem is the issue with K-pop is the idea of agency. So let's say that a K-pop artist is wearing a controversial headstyle, like they're wearing dreads or they're wearing cornrows. Eight times out of 10, they did not pick that hairstyle. The decision for their hairstyle came from a company, came to a manager, came through an entire chain of command that is responsible and culpable for this bad decision. But the heat tends to go on the artist. So in some cases, I do think it is a pass for the artist themselves if they are in a group that is managed at that level because they might not get it and they might not have had a say. But it also means that there are probably eight other people who do have an idea that it's not okay and should be blamed. (laughs) Huh. Okay. You know, you just mentioned cornrows. Are there other examples of this kind of behavior and or stealing of cultural signifiers? You know, I think some people might even say that some of this sounds kind of racist. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course it does. Um, Of course, it sounds sort of racist because it often is racist. (laughs) Are there examples of that? Oh, absolutely. So I think we have like a video clip that I wanted to talk you through. Yeah. So BTS now is a household name, right? BTS! South Korean 
Korean boy band BTS have achieved unprecedented global success this year. Two consecutive number one albums on the Billboard charts. In 2013, BTS is just another boy group, nowhere near like what we would see now, especially in um, Anglophone fandom. Uh, the song is called We Are Bulletproof Part 2. And this was, I think, the first video I watched of theirs. And immediately... I was, I'll say I was shocked because it seemed to be straight up the costume of blackness, of putting on blackness as a concept. The beat is really heavy. It's very catchy. Um, It's the type of thing where I think after this, uh, I'd be with my friends in their car and they'd want to play this in the car with the windows down in L.A. because it sounded like gangster rap. And... Lyrically, too. I mean, the chorus is click, click, bang, bang with a gun. Uh, And then it's the imagery, right? We've got, I don't know where to begin, the Bulls jersey, the basketball. And then, of course, RM, or as I knew him at the time, Rap Monster, has got the, the fade cut, the pimp stick with the dollar sign on it the chains, you know, all of these. And then what's also interesting to me is Big Hit provides official English subtitles. And the use on the English subtitles lyrically of just, like J-U-S-S, that they were putting in a certain inflection, right, almost a black scent. And you have to remember that at the same time, uh, Rap Monster, RMM, is going on variety shows in Korea and saying his talent is talking black. Wait, seriously? Yes. Yes. I mean, he's apologized for it since then. Uh, but that was like his one of his talents was that he could sound black and he would say things on shows and you see all the hosts laughing. And this is how BTS started. It's deeply cringy. It's still cringy. There's no other term for it. So then to see that with this video at the same time and see that it does look like costumes, how each of them seem to have a costume of a type of Black masculinity uh, is really unsettling for me as a scholar and as a fan. When you watch that video, you know, you just walked me through it. How does that impact you personally? It's really, it's really complex. It's conflicting. It makes me think about when I was in high school and I went to a high school where there were no other people of color in the middle of nowhere. And I had classmates, white classmates who thought it was fine to say the N-word, to say racial slurs, knowing, even knowing my own background. And when I looked at this for the first time, I was thinking, oh my God, is that this again? When we talk about this packaging or this repackaging of Black American culture, or what they think Black American culture is, where does that come from? I would argue that it comes from three different strains, one being the American military presence in South Korea uh, and the exposure that that gave to a lot of Korean people, and also the diversity that it brought to Korea because there are a lot of people of mixed heritage because of the American military presence in Korea, and that that's where they tended to socialize for the first time with more than one Black person at a time. So that tends to be an exposure for them. And sometimes it's really good. And sometimes I think it it also leads to this type of path where we're sitting back watching a music video going, what the hell was that? So that's the first part. Uh, The second part would be just the global circulation of American pop culture and how that has predominantly been um, 
a celebration of blackness or a celebration of the co-option of blackness, like rock and roll. The third would be the industry itself. So like I, what I mentioned before about how the industry began with this idea of we want to make new edition, but we want them to be Korean. We want them to be boys to men, but we want them to be Korean. So there were seeds sown in the industry and in the training system, even if they sometimes conscious and sometimes unconscious, that also feed into it. So I don't think it's as simple as um, this idol sat down and said, hey, I watched this rap video and I want to do that. Does that happen? Totally. <laughs> but is that what's responsible for all of this? No. For K-pop, does the issue stop at cultural misappropriation or have there been other kinds of offenses that we need to think about? Sure. So, I mean, there's blackface on Korean TV fairly regularly. The other side is the fandoms themselves. And I say fandoms because there is no one K-pop fandom. There are multitudes of fandoms. And within those fandom spaces, there is a large amount of racism, sexism, classism, you name it. Have K-pop fans called out this kind of racism and cultural misappropriation in the past? Oh, of course. And especially there are so many K-pop fans who are Black, who are Indigenous, who are people of color, um, and who might have a platform or at least talking amongst themselves, pointing out, this made me uncomfortable, this isn't okay. Uh, Sometimes it stays at that level, and sometimes it goes all the way to the artist and to the management or to some type of campaign. But a lot of times when those campaigns or that awareness happens, there's a huge amount of pushback from white fans, especially in the U.S. Really? What kind of pushback? Well, there's people who have been doxxed on Twitter. They're having their private information shared. It makes your fandom experience uncomfortable, right? If your name circulates as you're a troublemaker, you're someone who makes it about race. You're making it about you. Uh, You don't understand the idol. It makes it so that way anytime you want to participate in this thing that previously brought you joy or previously that you liked engaging with critically, that you don't want to do that anymore. There are lots of... um, Black, Indigenous, POC fans who have just dropped out because they don't want to deal with this anymore. And you're writing a, a dissertation about these these groups. Oh, yeah. And you call yourself a fan of some of these groups. So how have you made peace with that or, or have you not been able to do that just yet? So for me, I'll be really honest. Um, so I've lived the past four and a half years in Japan doing this research and working on my dissertation and participating in K-pop fandom in Japan. K-pop fandom in Japan operates differently. It has its own problems. It has its own racism. When I come back now and see how it operates in the U.S. and how easily the ease of access and the feeling of entitlement that a lot of Anglosphere fans have, that's where I tend to have my problem. Mm. Because I think it feeds a lot of the behaviors or it gives a pass to the agencies. Why would a management agency care about correcting cultural misappropriation of blackness if you have girls on the internet saying, I love him until I die and I'll support him until I die? So, Miranda, these recent online actions that we've seen from K-pop fans in support of Black Lives Matter, does that represent a cultural shift of the K-pop fandom? Like, Given everything you've just told me, how should I look at that? Well, again, the K-pop fandom doesn't exist. There are many K-pop fandoms. I I look at it as a double-edged sword. So on one hand, I think a lot of the campaigns, for example, taking over the hashtag White Lives Matter, spamming the, the Dallas police app with fan cams, 
I think those things got attention, and I think a lot of it tended to be bandwagoning. It tended to be the type of competitive fandom that has pushed, been the same exact structures that have pushed out fans who are Black, who are Indigenous, who are POC. At the same time, all of this action and sort of the viewing of that has made more of a space for those fans who were previously marginalized to look at each other and talk to each other and say, oh man, what are you going through? Maybe we can have this conversation. Maybe I can get back in the fandom with people who get it. Hmm. And I think that's the positive side of it. Uh, But when I saw a lot of the... So many articles, right, are coming out saying K-pop fans actually care. K-pop fans are activists. Not only is that problematic just in the history of fandom, in the history of fan activism, which has a long history, K-pop fandom isn't special in that respect at all, but it tended to be pictures of, again, screaming white girls. (laughs) That's a problem because I don't think it has automatically made somebody care. And I don't think when their artist comes out and says, oh, Black Lives Matter, if that's the impetus it takes for someone to care, then I still question their allyship. What is the takeaway from hearing about this online activism that has been done seemingly in support of Black Lives Matter? What is the takeaway? What do you want people to think when they see another headline about this? There are cultures of fandoms. It's always going to be global, but it's going to be global for better and for worse. And this includes problems with things like race, gender, class, and language. The best articles coming out, the best headlines coming out, the best attention for K-pop fandoms coming forward is where are the positive points and where can we make change, right? This is no different than the, the asking for systemic changes for Black Lives Matter. It's the same thing in structures of fandom, and it's the same thing in structures of production. We can't forget the idols here who often have their rights trampled on, and we can't forget the people involved in production like choreographers, lyricists, stylists, who also have a hand in things. So I'd like to ask people to recognize that K-pop is a very big machine, And they need to have a more critical idea of how that machine works and also the people who say that they're fans of it. Miranda Ruth Larson is a PhD candidate at the University of Tokyo studying Japanese and Korean media. Miranda, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. We reached out to Big Hit Entertainment, the company that represents BTS for comment. We didn't hear back by our deadline. We also contacted a publicist at a U.S. company that represents big hit artists and received no reply. I want to take a moment to mention that there are likely many reasons why fans of K-pop participated in online activism in the name of Black Lives Matter. And we almost certainly didn't mention all of them in this episode. Asia Romano said that there is an increasing awareness that fandoms can be used for good, that they can be used for real change. And I'm sure many fans did these things for that reason. Many support Black Lives Matter and want to help. That probably wasn't the case for everyone, though, and that's worth talking about. More importantly, if we're going to move forward, we have to acknowledge the historical context behind the most successful art forms today and how that context impacts fans right now. And that includes K-pop. 
In the U.S., we're living through a moment of reckoning, and that can sometimes be painful, but that is how we improve. That's it for today. This is Reset, and I'm Arielle Duemros. But you don't have to say it that way. If you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Skylar Swenson and Will Reed produced the show. Amy Drofdoska is our editor. Our audio engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. And the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. And we'll be back on Friday. Later, nerds. Later, nerds.